Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nichol. We left off with, with this thought, we will approach the conception of eon. It takes us entirely away from any relation to time. So this is where we left off, and this is where we'll probably be leaving off for a while. Because this whole concept of eon and time is so difficult for us because we're like the fish swimming around and the little fish says to the mother fish, Mommy, what's water? We're like that. Time for us is everything. We're in it just like a fish is in water. And it's so difficult to undo everything. All of our thoughts, everything is based in this idea of time. So to get away from that is really difficult. The equivalent to the Greek word eon is in Hebrew, olam. Olam has not a physical significance, although it is often translated merely as world, but much more than the physical universe is meant by the term. We have already met this word in the passage from Ecclesiastes where it is said that man goes to his long home at death. He goes to the house of his olam, eon. If we try to grasp that the world in higher dimensions gives origin to the curtailed world in fewer dimensions, we can see that nothing can be added to the lower world that is not already in the higher world. So if we can see that the blueprint of the house determines where the walls are going to be and the windows are going to be and the doors are going to be and how high the ceiling is and all that stuff, then we can see that nothing is going to happen in the house that isn't in the blueprint when the house is being built. So it's a lot like that. If we can grasp that the blueprint is like a higher dimension, and that is what gives origin to the house, which is curtailed. In other words, it's limited. It has a certain shape. It has a certain height. It has certain dimensions. So it's curtailed in that way. The paper beings can add nothing to the pencil itself. These paper beings that we've talked about, I don't know about you, but I have really come to love the paper beings because it's such a great example. And if we can see the incredible limitation of the two-dimensional beings, the theoretical two-dimensional beings, then we get an idea of our limitation being in the third dimension and not being able to perceive the fourth dimension as it is, only to be able to see a sliver of it, a cross-section of it. The problem with us is, with the paper beings, we have the pencil coming down from above through the paper. But with us, our cross-section is going this way, horizontal. So we're just seeing this little cross-section we call now. But it's not really that way. It just looks that way to us. It looks like the past is on the left and the future is on the right, or however you look at it. I guess they'd look at it differently if they read from right to left. Then people would look at it differently. They might think the past is on the right and the future is on the left. So I don't know. But you see how relative it all is? And we think that it's also fixed and real. But when you start to look at it that way, it's like, uh-oh, it's all relative. And nothing here is solid. We think that this is solid. We, th we look at all the stuff around us and our senses tell us that it's solid. But we know for a fact that it's not. That there's all kinds of space between the atoms, the molecules that are bouncing around that make up the walls and the tables and all the stuff that we see around us. There's all this space in there, but we don't see that because it's moving too quickly for us. 
these are things to think about. And they're things to think about because they help to deconstruct your firm belief that everything you see and touch is the way it really is, is all there is to it. That if we see it, then that must be it. Then that's all there is to it. Just like the two-dimensional paper beings see this cross-section of the pencil, for them, that's all there is. You try and tell them there's something else, and you're liable to get a poke in the eye with a sharp stick, pencil whatever, because they don't like that any more than we like being told that we don't know everything. You know how difficult it is to be told that you don't know what you're talking about? Well, of course you know how difficult it is because I've been telling you for years, but, but, people, but people out in the world don't usually do that. Huh? It's gotten easier, yeah. It does get easier. And, and what happens is, it just chips away at your ego, and it chips away at your self-satisfaction. And then every once in a while, you do see something. You just get one of those conscious shocks. And you see that you were wrong, or you don't really know. For me, the most difficult thing was realizing how stupid I was. Realizing that there were so many people so much smarter than I. Ouch! Because, you know, we're all, we all think we're A players, you know, and we're not. And that's just the way that is, you know. It's like, you can't swim like, what's that guy, Michael Phelps. You can't run like whoever, and you can't hit a baseball like somebody else. You can't throw a football like, you just can't. And that's all there is to it. You can't press that much weight. You know, you're not Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're not, or whomever. I don't know who the latest and the greatest is, but see, all of that changes too. None of that stays the same. Nothing, nothing here remains the same. So none of our relationships are really meaningful in an eon sense. Because in time, all the relationships end. No matter who you're related to, it ends. What we can count on here is change. In this light, we can comprehend some of the meaning of the following passages in which the term olam is used. For the Holy One hath weighed the world, and with measure hath he measured the times, and by numbers he has numbered the seasons. Neither will he rest nor stir until the number be fulfilled. That's Esdras. Here world is Olam. I know that whatsoever God does, it shall be done forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken away from it. That's Ecclesiastes. Forever in this passage is literally Olamic. God creates on the Olamic or Eonian plane, that is, behind Eon is God. And behind phenomenal reality, that is, what we're living in, is Eon. We know through the five senses this is our reality, phenomenal, because here it is. It's a phenomena, phenomenon. Phenomena is plural. Okay, so God makes the Eon, and Eon makes the cosmos. The cosmos makes time, and time makes coming to be. So everything for us is coming to be. What else can you call it when you're stuck in this little sliver, you're here in this little sliver, and everything's coming to be? What do they say? And it came to pass. It's coming to be, and it will pass. All things will pass. The essence of God is the good. The essence of the eon is sameness. The essence of the cosmos is order. The essence of time is chance. And the essence of coming to be is life. The workings of God are mind and soul. The workings of the eon are immortality and duration. The workings of the cosmos are reinstatement in identity and reinstatement by substitution. The workings of time are increase and decrease, and the workings of coming to be are quality and quantity. I don't expect you to get all of that. 
but as we go on, it will become clear as we have examples. It's a lot right off the bat. The eon then is in God. The cosmos is in the eon. Time is in the cosmos, and coming to be takes place in time. That's Walter Scott's translation of Hermetica, Volume 1. This is causation in terms of rank or scale. It's funny, we don't think of rank as scale, but that's exactly what it is. Everything is scale. Everything. But we are, in our ordinary state of consciousness, we take everything for granted. We don't think about things. We don't ever think about things. We see it, it's there, and that's it for us. We don't think about how did it get there. We rarely do. So this is causation in terms of rank or scale, or as it was called, order of excellence. Everything is contained in something greater. And what is greater is soul, that is, what gives origin and meaning to what is lesser. So what gives origin to your body and meaning to your body is your soul, because it precipitates it, as I've said any number of times. And by now, it should be starting to sink in. It's only been a quarter of a century that I've been telling you this. So by now, it should be <laughs> starting to sink in a little. This something greater does not act from the horizontal line of past, present, future, but meets us vertically. You know, it's kind of funny. I was talking to somebody one time in, in Macedonia, and he said, well, how come your group's been together for so long and nobody has awakened? And I thought, well, people who first start to read about this, they always think, oh, well, it's easy. You just do it. Well, what they don't understand is it takes a lifetime to undo what you've already done. It's not the doing that is difficult. It's the undoing. It's not the thinking that is difficult. It's the unthinking. It's getting rid of the garbage, the lies, the illusions, the false conceptions, the false personality that makes up this thing that we call I. And that is death to us. That means that you, what you think you are, must be deconstructed. It's like, but that's too hard. Right. It's too hard. Right. That's why people aren't doing it. It's too hard. What makes it hard? Not just the effort involved. The effort involved is dependent upon the hypnotism of life. All the time that you're struggling and shaking and slapping yourself to try and wake up, life is humming and singing a song to you, a lullaby. To put you to sleep, it's rocking you. It's doing everything in its power, which means almost everything, to keep you asleep. And, you know, there are all kinds of parables about this, why and how, but none of that matters if you can simply accept the fact that you are asleep right now. You are asleep right now. You are asleep. And the best you can do by recognizing, by really genuinely recognizing, oh my God, I'm asleep, that is waking up a little. Just to see that you are asleep is waking up a little bit. But trying to stay awake? You know, it's like Curtis and I were sitting in the family room today, and I was leaned back in the chair, and every once in a while I'd snark, you know what I snark, <laughs> and wake Curtis up, <laughs> who was sleeping on the sofa, you know, dozing, he called it. But every once in a while, I'd snark, and then I'd look over and curse. So I thought, yeah, two old guys. <laughs> anyway, I said, you ought to go over to Lori's this time for meditation. I said, you ought to get a, go over to Lori's now and get a proper nap. <laughs> anyway, the point is, it is hard to stay awake. You think you are awake, and the next thing you know, if you're fortunate, you snark. And then it's like, oh, I was asleep. 
And that is waking up just for a moment. And then you're right back at it again. You're right back to sleep again. People who don't observe themselves properly never get that. They never get that. Then they say things like, well, how come you're not awake yet? Well, how come you're an idiot? It's like, yeah, everybody's awake in their imagination. <laughs> so, yada, yada. What gives origin and meaning to what is lesser? That's the soul. This something greater does not act from the horizontal line of past, present, future, but meets us vertically. So it is above. It's just why Gurdjieff is always saying, there is a rope hanging above you at every instant. You must reach up and grab that rope and pull yourself up out of this, out of this river of sleep. Because that's what this is. This is a river of sleep. It's like you're on this river. That's the horizontal line we call time. And you're in a boat. And there are trees, and it's rocking, and it's gentle, and the birds, and maybe... And the sunshine, and you're snoring away. And every once in a while you wake up and you see all this stuff going by. Stuff's not going by. You are. That's your sliver. That's your cross-section that you're seeing. The riverbank is not going by, but that's how we see it. Where this vertical and horizontal line meet in the point of now stands man. That's where we're at. And into this now of man, if it be realized, here's the big one, if it be realized, enter causes and effects from the line of time, from past and future, and influences from the vertical direction from what ranks above the order of time. At any moment, cause and effect from the horizontal line can be affected and is affected, if it's realized, from the vertical line, what is above. So this is why Gurdjieff said, reach up, grab the rope, because that is how you get influences from a higher dimension, from higher levels, into your moment, now. Seen in this way, we need not only be products of the past. So if we look at it this way, we can see that there are higher influences that are acting on us. We are not just products of our past. There's more to us than that. The problem is, is that we don't see it. Because what operates from above operates directly on the soul. Where's your soul? Well, the best you can do is look at the bottom of your shoe. I mean, because we don't know. We have all kinds of theories and ideas, but you have to say, I don't know. The cause of our existence does not only lie in the generations of the past. Along the horizontal timeline are parents, grandparents, etc. One source of causes. But along the vertical line is cause coming from another direction from eon, and entering every moment into the present. God, then, is the source of all things. The eon is the power of God, and the work of the eon is the cosmos which never came into being, but is ever coming into being by the action of the eon, and that which holds the universe together is the eon. That comes from the Hermetica. This is old, long before the New Testament. Let us lay down two classes of being, the seen and the unseen. Now, here's where some people have so much trouble that they can't get beyond that. They can't make it to after the colon. They make it to and the unseen. It's like, well, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Right, like air. So you need to live in China where you can see the air so you know it exists. But the problem is if you do live in China where you can see the air and you know it exists, your life is going to be shortened because the air quality is so bad there. The unseen, eternal in their relations. The scene, never the same, but ever-changing. That comes from Phaedo, written by Plato, if, just in case you didn't know what Phaedo was. We know those changing relations that belong to the changing order of time. 
You're looking at them. You're sitting in the same room with them now. You know them. Your parents, your grandparents, your children. All of these things are all changing relations. And you know them. And pretty much that's all you know. In ourselves, we can know the kaleidoscope of changing eyes. Now, we can know it. That doesn't mean many people ever will. Most people will continue to dream that they are one single permanent I with one single will. They will call that thing I, no matter how many contradictions it has, no matter how many times it changes its mind, or it appears to change its mind. We know nothing of another form of relations, another existence and arrangement, which Plato here calls eternal, eonian. Quite different, for example, from the linked chain of apparent causes and effects in the phenomenal world. We see that if I drop this, it falls 32 feet per second per second until it hits something that stops it or until it reaches maximum velocity. Once it reaches maximum velocity, it only goes that fast until it hits whatever it is or until something stops it. We know about that. We know about that kind of cause and effect. But we don't know about cause and effect in time is one order of things, but only one order. See, for us, whatever we see is the only order. It's very difficult for us to even imagine that there could be something else. And this is why the example of the two-dimensional beings, because it makes dents in our self-security, our self-talk, our self-assurance about everything. And we need those dents and cracks in there so that we can begin to distrust our minds a little bit. The Ionian order demands a form of thinking that is opposed to the contemplation of the world by the senses, acknowledging nothing higher than the connected chain of things in the world of appearances. So you can see that a materialist will not acknowledge anything that isn't material, that he can't somehow see or hear or measure. And then, now remember, we started off with this book showing us that we are materialists. We forget that in just the time, this is the 27th time we've done this. So in those last 26 times, or in those last 20 times, we have forgotten those first few times when we were sure that we were materialists. Now, we're not materialists, we're spiritual. <laughs> sure we are. So we have these reminders. Now, understanding is certainly more than sense. You must know that understanding is more than sense. It's just more. All the primal forces from which come the things seen lie entirely out of the field of sense, either as perceived or conceived under any of the forms of sense. Taylor Lewis said that. What it means is that all of these things that we see come from somewhere else, but we can't see that. We can't see where it comes from any more than the two-dimensional paper beings can see where that pencil is coming from that is passing through their second dimension because it is a three-dimensional object. And the only way they can perceive it is in their dimension, which is two-dimensional, which means they see a cross-section of it. We are the same way with time. All we can see is a cross-section of it. So we can't even imagine something existing, a whole something existing. But that's exactly what you're asked to do. You're not only asked to imagine it, you're asked to keep on imagining it until it becomes real to you. You're asked to form it. You're asked to recreate yourself. Recreate your thoughts, your mind, the way you perceive things, the way you hold things, and the kinds of ideas that you entertain. That's what you're being asked to do. And if you wish to develop, you will do that. If it doesn't matter to you, if you just like to go to the bank and put money in or take money out or go to the grocery store or go to the restaurant or go to the movies, then it's not going to matter to you. If those are the only things that matter to you, then who cares about transformation? There are people who are stuck on that wheel like hamsters. Hopefully, you're not as stuck as when I first met you. Hopefully.
Plato means that the order and relations that are Ionian, by their very nature, do not belong to time and sense, but are governed by principles which are fixed, unchangeable, and necessary. Now, see, that's the thing. We see fixed, unchangeable as all the table. We, when we think about it, it's like that falls apart fast because you know the table can burn or can break or all kinds of things can change about it. Not in the sense that they give a dead, immovable order of existence, but one of infinite harmony. Now, this is where you need to put on your thinking cap. I know that's a trite phrase, but you really need to do something about thinking. You really need to apply yourself to it, make effort about this. All that belongs to time is a weak reflection of this perfect order of things. So we're talking about this higher realm where the blueprint, the blueprint is perfect. And everything is involved in the blueprint. In the Ionian blueprint, all of this, this house and all the houses and before the house and after the house, all of that is involved, is contained within that Ionian blueprint. Am I making sense to you? I know I'm making sense to me, but I need to make sense to you. You need to get this. You need to get that this blueprint isn't just this two-dimensional thing on a piece of paper. Now it is this living thing that is completely done. So the blueprint is really an idea, and the idea is a thought in the mind of God. And that thought is complete, whole, from everlasting to everlasting. It's infinite. It contains everything, every particle, every bit, every sliver of time that this, whatever it is, is pressed into this realm, into this third dimension. And that's what it is. It's pressed into this third dimension, just the same way that the pencil is pressed through the second dimension. Okay? Are we tracking here? More or less. All right, if there's something you don't understand, you, of course you have to understand it enough to know you don't understand it, which is kind of a problem. It's not hard. It just sounds difficult, but you need to picture it. I've been playing with this for 40-some years. You know, this whole idea of ideas generate everything that is visible. It comes from something that's invisible. It's clear, clean metaphysics that what is above makes everything that appears below. Anything that is here cannot exist unless it exists somewhere else first. And where it exists first, it keeps on existing after it stops existing here. Okay? So it is Eonian. Eternal Eonian. We have a problem with eternal, and we'll talk about that a little bit, maybe if we can get to it. Yeah, we might be able to get to it. If I stop blabbing and just read, of course, you could do that yourself. All belonging to time, Plato calls a moving image of eternity. So anything that we see is a moving image of eternity. And it has to be a moving image of eternity because eternity doesn't move. But here, for us, it looks like it does move. This moving image is that in which we live. We're living in the moving image. In his allegory of creation, referring to the order of scale in the universe, Plato says that God thought to make a moving image of the fixed eternity, the eon. And as he arranged the heavens, eternity itself always remaining in unity, without succession. In unity means without succession. Everything for us is succession. Something follows, everything is sequential. Something follows something else. This moment will follow, will be followed by the next moment. So that's the only way we perceive things. We're asked now to begin to perceive things in a new way. In order to do that, you're going to have to jerk your head out of this and allow it to float in something else. That's really the best way I know how to put it. You really have to just snap yourself out of this. It really is reaching up and grabbing the rope and pulling yourself up out of this well. And it's really like pulling yourself up out of this dimension, out of this reality. So he says, he made an image of eternity to proceed by number, by succession, the same which we call time. 
This image of eon, or eternity, has to be moving for us, because we cannot grasp the whole thing, any more than the two-dimensional paper beings can grasp the whole three-dimensional pencil passing through their realm. The reader will understand that all references to eternity as being fixed or unchangeable do not mean a static or frozen condition of things. I don't know whether the reader is going to understand that or not, but you're going to have to get it. It doesn't mean that it's static. Perfection is fluid. It's harmonious. It's unity. It's never changing because it's always the same. But that doesn't mean that it's static. It doesn't mean that it's frozen. I think it's Goethe who said, architecture is frozen music. That'll give you an idea if you think of it that way. Think about architecture as frozen music. So for us, and remember, anything frozen can melt here. It changes. But the music is always perfect and it's always there. Beethoven's Ninth, the whole thing, the whole symphony is there. The whole symphony is one whole symphony. But we can only experience it in succession. But imagine if you could experience the whole thing all at once. Now, if you can imagine that, then you'd have to be able to imagine, well, you don't have to, but you could imagine then being able to experience all music all at once. All music. Because there is a music of the spheres. There is a, the, the universe is making music. Well, if you remember from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan sings the world into creation. And that's such a beautiful image because that really is closer to the truth than anything that we can say. We have to have images because this is outside of our dimension, outside of our realm, which makes it very difficult for us, but not impossible. On the contrary, so it's not only is it eternity is not fixed and unchangeable, I mean, it is fixed and unchangeable, but it doesn't mean static or frozen condition of things. On the contrary, they mean a perfect expression of all things, a state in which all possibilities, interblending and interpenetrating, are in harmonious accord, a state of infinite richness and diversity and fullness, obeying unchanging principles which bring every part into relationship with the whole. This is not hard. If you can get it in a small way, you can extrapolate it out. So get it in a bowl of soup. Get it in a bowl of alphabet soup. The whole alphabet's in there, and it's contained in that bowl. And though you stir it, it's all still a perfect bowl of soup, though it's moving. It's all moving, but it's not changing. It is still the soup. Get it? Okay, so now let's just extrapolate that out to this other dimension where everything that we see is like that, except that what we see is this instead of that. Okay, that's a bizarre example, the bowl of alphabet soup, but it's the way it works. If you can take one little step and another little step and another little step, you can get a little bit higher and a little bit higher. Whee! Okay. If man could reach a state of harmony, he would have being corresponding to this eternal world. If you could reach a state of harmony, why can't you reach a state of harmony? Okay, this is not a difficult question. Because you're fragmented because you're conflicted, because you are not one. It is impossible to reach a state of harmony when you don't even know what is in there. When you consider that 99.9% .9 of you is unknown to you, really all you know about you is what you know about you right now. Now, if you think about it, if you put some effort in, then you can see that you have been able to observe yourself at different times, and you know that there's a lot more to you than just this. But who thinks that? It's too hard to think that. It takes too much energy to think like that all the time. It's much easier to sleep than it is to try and stay awake, which is why we spend so much time sleeping. Eon, as a thought of God realized to its full, is developed in every direction, and time is a moving image, a trace of Eon, limited to our imperfect understanding, one expression of this full form. 
So what we see is A, B, C, D in succession. We don't see the whole bowl of alphabet soup. We just see this A, B, C, D in succession. And we don't even, we don't know because of our limited understanding, our imperfect understanding. If we think of it in the language of dimensions, it means that time, as we know it, suffers from insufficiency. It has not the dimensional capacity to contain eon, just as the paper world cannot contain pencil. Let's note, in passing, that this inability of time to embrace eon was held to be the cause of a circular movement. That is, time is curved and keeps coming back on itself. We'll talk more about that when we're talking about recurrence. Recurrence is a mind-bender, so it'll take us a while to get to that. We need to have our minds be a little more flexible than they are now. Our minds are incredibly rigid. You have to see that the senses make you really rigid, really contracted, and small. And the truth about you is so much bigger than that, so much more fluid, so much greater than that, that it's incomprehensible to the senses. And so we need these parables and allegories and examples. It's like yoga for the mind. See, that's what this is. These ideas, it's like yoga for the mind, where you're trying to get your mind more flexible so that you can turn here and there instead of this stiff, one-way, forward-looking thing or backward-looking thing. You're either looking forward or you're looking backward. What we're trying to do is to be able to sweep and see the whole thing. We're going to stop here because this is a good place to stop. And we'll pick up here next time and... Until then, I think, if you'll think about these things, these examples, I know that I come up with some kooky examples, but don't blame me. It just flies into my head, and I don't have a very good sensor, so it just flies out my mouth. But it makes sense to me, or else I wouldn't let it come out of my mouth. It makes sense to me because it's really, truly like this. And maybe this is why I'm so familiar with it. I have full-blown ideas that just pop into my head. And they pop into my head in a nanosecond. And the whole thing, I understand and see the whole thing in that nanosecond. But it takes me sometimes a half an hour to tell it all. Like you can have a dream like that. You don't think it's like that, but it is like that. And it will take you a half an hour to write it down, 15 minutes to write it down or to tell it. But it all happened, bam, like that. This goes back to the time, the stuff like drowning, you see, where your whole life flashes and you live every moment like that. It's similar to that. I've been doing this for so long that it's just natural. I don't know what it's like not to have full-blown, fully understood ideas just go bloop like a bubble. It just comes up like a bubble. It's there, and then it takes however long to explain it. And along with that bubble come these crazy explanations because that's all part of the picture. It's like a whole reel of film that I experience all at once. And then as I unreel it, it comes out in words and images and like that. It's very interesting. It's fascinating, which is probably why I love what I do so much. It's because it's always this miracle. It's just this, wow, where did that come from? Well, I know where it came from. It came from above. That's where it came from. And that's all I need to know. Now, other people might need to know a lot more, but I don't need to know that. See, it's like, you breathe. You don't really need to know how. Your heart is beating. You don't really need to know how in order for your heart to beat. You can just trust by the fact that you're sitting there breathing and conscious and looking around and feeling yourself in your body. You're able to direct your attention to your toe. Can you direct your attention to your right big toe now? 
Yeah, you're able to, now can you direct your attention to your left little pinky finger there, right under the fingernail there? Can you direct your attention to that without touching it? Yes, you can. See, so you are able to direct your attention. You are able to do that. And you're able to do that because you have trained your mind to do that. Some people can't do it. They can't feel. There's huge, vast areas of their body that are completely dead, that they are just simply unconscious. They're not conscious of. You say something, oh, yes, I know it's there. That's not the same thing as being able to feel it. You know this because you took Vipassana a couple of times, and so you have had the experience of finding whole tracks of your body that are just dead, that are absolutely in the dark, dead, that you don't even know are there. Well, it's a wonderful world. We're having fun now. Truth is everything.